Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We're going to start making our way through Luke's gospel. I don't know how long it'll take. Uh, most definitely the rest of this year and into 2021, Lord willing. And last week we, we, we left off at the end of verse 45. But before we get to that, um, in 1938, J.R.R. Tolkien published a landmark essay, perhaps his most foundational entitled, On Fairy Stories. And in it, while seeking to defend the goodness of happy endings, he coined a term, eucatastrophe. Eucatastrophe. And it's built from catastrophe, which means literally to turn down, and the prefix eu, eu, meaning good. Thus, in a, in a story with eucatastrophe, it's at the point of greatest tragedy, you have the workings also of the greatest good. And if you've read anything by Tolkien, you understand this to be true. That's how he wrote. And in a letter later to his son, Tolkien wrote, I, I coined the word eucatastrophe, the sudden happy turn of story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. And what a remarkable uh, about this defining word is that Tolkien meant it, and he most definitely displayed it in his works. And to lead us out of literature into faith, he says. Into a, in the eucatastrophe, we see a brief version that the answer may be greater. It may be a far-off gleam or an echo of evangelism in the real world. The birth of Christ is a eucatastrophe of man's history. The resurrection is a eucatastrophe of the incarnation. The story begins and ends with joy. And so as we come back to Luke chapter 1, we come to a people, if you remember from a few weeks ago, who are hoping to hear from God. But they haven't heard a word in 400 years. That's a long time to wait, isn't it? Y'all been waiting for Amazon to deliver packages in a week and you're getting mad, right? Where is UPS? 400 years. And things seem to get bad and worse. And they, you can imagine, where's God in this? They haven't heard anything. Will God be faithful to his word? And here we have Zechariah and Elizabeth waiting for God and yet still serving him. And the word comes with promises of God's soon arrival to earth. And you, you catastrophe. At the point of things getting worse and continuing on, you have the workings of the greatest good coming in, breaking through. And, and what does God do? Who does he choose? Two women. Nobody's from eagerness to, to turn the story now. And God chooses the weak and the powerless here to show his incredible power, his magnificent strength. He uses them because he wants everyone to be completely certain that it is God who did this, and no one else can take credit. It is God who brought an elderly woman barren to a healthy, full-term pregnancy. It is God who, who brought a young virgin girl to be pregnant with the Messiah. It was God who did this. So this morning, we'll continue in our journey. Lord willing, finish chapter 1 of Luke's Gospel. And the main idea I want you to share, and, and it's going to be on the screen. Uh, hopefully, we can do this weeks following um, but the main idea, so if you write down anything this morning, and you all have cell phones, right? So you have no excuse to take a note here. If you write down anything, write down this main idea. The humble will be exalted in God's mercy, and the proud will be humbled in judgment. 
And that's the theme that we will find a lot in the scriptures and, and we're familiar with, but we see it so clearly in the life of Elizabeth and Mary. And so I pray that God will can apply this lesson to our lives as well. God is merciful to those who fear him and his power is able to overcome the proud. So I hope you can see his mercy clearly this morning. And so I have three points this morning and I didn't set out when I started to write my sermon to write it in Latin. It just happened. I don't even know Latin. Some of you kids do, I know. So three Latin terms, the Magnificent, the Fidelum, and the Benedictus. And I'll explain each as we walk through this. So the first, the Magnificent. So before that, though, I left off at verses 39 through 45, and I want to just cover that before we look at the Magnificent. And so if you look at verse 39, so in those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judea, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Elizabeth does not call her the mother of God. Nowhere does it state in the Bible that Mary is the mother of God. Elizabeth is very specific here. She says, the mother of my Lord. Mary is not God's mother. There's only one monarch in heaven, and Mary's not a part of it. She is not the queen of heaven. She is not part of the Trinity. She has never had the status of God. Mary was a sinner like us. And we see that even more clearly in verse 47 when she states that God is her Savior, our Savior. Mary believed in the Messiah to save her from her sins. Verse 44, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. It isn't noticeable that there's an immediate recognition of the presence of incarnate God. God is speaking through Elizabeth here, filled with the Spirit, and she's teaching us the incredible truth of God coming to earth in the flesh of a man. And the basic response to the arrival of Jesus and to the scene of history is joy. This is true for John, it's, it's true for anyone else who comes to Christ in faith. When we recognize him, we rejoice in him, leaping for joy in his salvation. And, and notice Elizabeth's humility in this. Remember, she is an older woman, thought she would never have a child, and for six months she's pregnant. You can imagine the excitement that is just teeming inside of her, that she's going to have a baby finally. And yet you see the humility here. What's her focus? Her focus is not on herself. To see her cousin come, you would think the first thing she would say is, I'm having a baby. But that's not what she says. She's praising God for him coming to earth. She's not jealous. She's honored of the presence of the Lord there. She isn't worshiping Mary. She's recognizing her Lord, and she's filled with joy. And then from there, we move into verse 46 and on. It's the, the, his, the section historically called the Magnificent, and it's a title taken from the first word in Latin, which means magnifies here in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. 
and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, and he has scattered the proud in their thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And what we read here is Mary pouring out her soul in this song. And when she says her soul and her spirit, Mary's referring to the very center of her being, the depths of her being wants God to be exalted and magnified. Some have objected that a teenage Mary could have written such a beautiful song, but they discount the doctrine of inspiration. And they also don't recognize that Mary knew her Bible. You see so many stories in the Old Testament in her song. She was very Bible literate. A lot of her echoes in her song point us back to, to the, the song that I read earlier of Hannah's song, right? Can you see the, the connection between the two? But not just from Hannah. Mary's mag, magnific, uh song here quotes or alludes to verses from Genesis and Deuteronomy and First and Second Samuel and Job and Psalms and Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. She knew her Bible. And it's like she was striving to put the entire Old Testament into one beautifully compiled song. And from that, I surmise that Mary was taught the Bible at home. She's a testimony of parents that strove to instill the Word of God into their kid. And as parents, the best thing we can teach our kids is the Bible. And we can get caught up teaching them so many things, but friends, what will last for eternity is what our kids learn about God from the Scriptures. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119 just echoes that over and over for us. So parents, yes, store up knowledge and science and math and history, but don't neglect the scriptures. We can help as a church, but the responsibility firmly rests on you, dads and moms. Mary knew her Bible. She is an encouragement to us. Her Magnificent is a song of, of gospel joy for Christians. And her song here seeks to magnify God. To magnify means to enlarge. And what Mary wanted was to enlarge her vision and our vision of who God is. Her, her main goal here was to show the greatness of God. She wanted to magnify God, not, not her position as the mother of her Lord. And the same God who, who exalts the humble also humbles the proud. So Mary moves from the personal to the national, even international. She moves from what God has done for her to rejoice in to what God will do for many. And just so you know, friends, when God says he will do something, it's as good as if he does it. What he says happens. His promises can be counted on. The, the proud that she has in mind here are those that take no account of God and God will deal with them. One commentary, Daryl Bach writes, the proud look down on others because they do not look up to God, and so in the Bible, the proud are constantly presented as God's enemies. As James says, God opposes the proud. God says in Isaiah, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. God will do this. Later, when, when Mary says in, this, in her song, all generations will call me blessed, she's not being prideful here. 
it's in a sense, she's not saying all generations will call me blessed. Like, like look at me, I'm really good and I'm great. They're going to look up to me. That's not what she's saying at all. She's not being boastful. She's not saying that she should be worshipped. Once Mary had been touched by the gracious act of God, things are different. She's, she's wanting to point back to God. She's being humble in this. She's acknowledging her in, in indebtedness to God's kindness to her and his grace to her. Mary realizes that she's like the Israelites of old, and she's enslaved to her sin. She's bound up in her brokenness, and she, she knew now things were going to change because her Lord was coming, and he chose her, of all people, to carry the Messiah to full term and deliver him so that one day this Messiah could deliver her and, and God's people from their sin. So she's res- responding this way. God chose me. She's astounded that God would choose her And you need to make note, friends, of God's use of surprising means. If you're here today or or watching online and you're proud, you need to be on your guard because you're in for a surprise. God does not view you as deserving his love, but rather deserving his punishment. If God is good, he will punish you because of your sins against him. Even the sins that you have long forgotten, God remembers and he will punish. God will scatter those proud, those who have no feeling of need for him. God will bring low those that have propped themselves up. But we read in John's gospel that whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. On the other hand, you might be listening or thinking through, and you're not a Christian and you're not proud, but you're despairing. You need to take hope that God continues to work in situations even after it seems hopeless to you. We're surrounded by people right here and even in this room that their earthly hopes have faded away and, and pale in comparison to the hope that they have in Jesus Christ. Our hopes that we have in this life will come to an end, but our hope as Christians in Jesus Christ exceed them all, and they will never end. He is a great and glorious Savior. So we need to trust him in every trial, uh, trust him in every good thing and hopeful thing, and trust in Christ in all. Christian, I wonder if... If you were to write your own song, like Mary does here, what would it say? Maybe it would be a good practice this afternoon, heading home, to, to think through that. If you, were, if you didn't have your Bible open, what would you be able to write about your relationship with God and who God is? Could, could someone understand the gospel based upon what you write? How, how would God be viewed in your song? Perhaps God brought this section to our midst this morning so that we could pause and reflect on God and his goodness to us. So I pray that you be encouraged by Mary's song and even spend some time today or this week writing your own in praise and adoration of God to, to magnify him, to, to point again to him and his goodness to you. So that's point one, number one, the magnificent. Point number two, the fidelum, the faithful. 
I chose the faithful, but then I had two other points in, in Latin, so I just went with it. For those of you who know Latin, maybe I hope I'm right. If not, you can tell me later. Uh, the faithful here are Elizabeth and Zechariah. And the day has come for the baby to be born, and we wonder if they'll be faithful to God's word spoken to them. So look at verse 56. Mary remained with her about three months with Elizabeth and returned home. So Mary's there, and, and, and the baby's about to be born. The, the connection I want you to recognize between Mary and Elizabeth is amazing. Together, their miracle children will change the world. I can only imagine Luke later in life going back to, to Mary and Elizabeth to interview him for his, his book that he's writing and hearing them dialogue about this experience. Because the bond they have is, is astounding. Together they will gain it all, and together they will lose it all. They will both walk through the joy of having children, and they will both walk through the pain of seeing them die. You know, your Bible, John will be beheaded by the wicked Herod, and Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. These mothers understood fully the, the jubilation of holding that new baby in their arms, of the hope of what will happen, and then seeing the suffering of their child eventually killed. And in verse 57, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And these simple words here are significant, Christian. So don't gloss over them too quickly. Think deeply about what Luke is telling us. Elizabeth, who was once barren, but then God opened her womb and promised a baby, even in her old age, now has the baby come. And this verse reminds us that we can trust God's word because God's word is true. God said Elizabeth would be pregnant, and here she is having a baby. So when God says it, it happens. And in verse 58, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. So part of what the angel promised in, in, in chapter 1, verse 14, was that many would rejoice at, at the birth of her son. And what we read here is people showing up to rejoice with this woman. This is something that no one thought would happen. I'm sure neighbors and relatives had given up hope long ago that she would have a child, and there she is having a boy, and they're rejoicing with her. And, and it's an important thing here to recognize. You see it. They said they heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. So this is no record, regular circumstance. They're again seeing and recognizing God. God was most definitely involved. And God shows us mercy when he punishes us less than we deserve, and he also shows us mercy when he relieves suffering that we thought would never go away. And that's what we see here with Elizabeth. J.C. Ryle said, there was mercy in bringing her safely through her time of trial. There was mercy in making her the mother of a living child. Happy are those family circles whose births are viewed in this light as a special instance of the mercy of the Lord. And all children are a gift of God's mercy, no matter the circumstance. And we read in the Old Testament that God commanded his people, that all male children of Israel to be circumcised when they were eight days old. And so part of that ceremony was that they would name the child and the group, the family is there and they're assuming they're going to name him after his dad, right? I mean, he's been waiting his whole life to have a kid. And here we go, it's a boy, so they're surely going to name him Zachariah. But in verse 60, the mother answered, no, he shall be called John. Now remember, 
At this point, Zechariah is unable to speak still. Verse 61, and they said to her, none of your relatives is called by his name. Isn't that like family to tell you how to name your kids? And they made signs to the father, inquiring what he wanted to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. They all were curious and befuddled. Can you imagine the debate going on here with the family? What do you mean you're not going to name him Zachariah? Through all these years of not having a child, you don't even have a relative named John. What are you doing? And Zachariah steps in and he confirms Elizabeth. He's been mute for over nine months. It must have been glorious in their house for him not to speak. And he grabs the tablet. I'm sure it was an iPad. And he writes out, his name is John. And immediately, verse 64, and immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosened and he spoke, blessing God. And fear, I bet, I bet, fear came on all the neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. What testimony, what, what praise this would have brought to the people. Again, pointing them away from them to God. So at that very moment, Zechariah wrote down John's name. He found his voice. Remember the, the prophecy earlier in verse 20, Luke 120, And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you do not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the prophecy was fulfilled when the final peace fell and John was named. And here we see Zechariah showing his faith, his faith in God to be faithful. And by calling him John, the priest was showing that he truly believed what the angel had said those many months earlier. God is faithful to his promises. God will not let any of his words fall to the ground unfulfilled. Even when we're suffering, God is faithful to his promises. Friends, our suffering will either make you bitter or better towards God. I'm sure Zechariah had learned more about his heart and about God than he would ever learned before during those nine months. And see, in this, God had disciplined him in a way that taught him to trust in God and God's promises. And this is the mercy of God towards us. God uses hard circumstances in your life to teach us to stop trusting in our own power and to trust in him alone. So I ask, how are you handling your suffering right now? Is it working in us deeper thoughts of God's goodness? Or is it hardening our hearts towards him? Are we growing warmer or colder toward God? Your suffering will either make you better or bitter towards God. Which is it? You know, it's been a very tumultuous three months here. We're all in the same boat, but we've all faced different storms. How are you doing in all that? And, and I'm not trying to be pessimistic, but we're not done yet. We're still in the midst of the woods. So how are you doing? Are you content where God has you in the midst of this? Are you growing more resentful 
or more hopeful? Do people really want to hang out with you? Because you're hopeful in what God's doing, or are they kind of thankful they can just quarantine away in their house? How are you responding in the midst of all this? What is it that God is trying to purge from your heart? Remember, Zechariah was righteous in his service to the Lord. That's what Luke says of him. And yet, there was more that God needed to do in his life and his heart. Unbelief can still sneak into our hearts even when we're serving God. And we're called to trust him more than ourselves in all circumstances. Well, we've seen the Magnificent and the Fidelum. Last is the Benedictus, number three. A little more than nine months ago, Zechariah left the temple after seeing the angel Gabriel, and because of his unbelief, he left the temple unable to speak. And if you remember a few weeks ago, his duty was to come out and stand on the temple steps and was to give a benediction. He was unable to do that. He stood silent as they were all confused at what had happened. But here in verses 67 through the end, Zechariah's first words are a benediction. It's properly called the Benedictus, which is Latin for benediction, and he's speaking now after his silence, and it mirrors God speaking after a long silence to his people. And so here, here's Zechariah's words. Look at verse 67 and following. And his father, John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Zechariah here blesses and praises God because God had visited him God had visited and redeemed his people with a strong salvation. He's pointing again forward to what God is going to do. And he says a horn, and it's used here, the horn is used in the Bible to symbolize strength and power. This is a powerful salvation for Israel and was promised long ago to come through David and his line. And salvation is an act of mercy, and God saves to prove his mercy to his people. And the entire Bible, from Abraham to the prophets down to King David, is about this one thing, God's salvation. The Bible has one story, God visiting to, and coming to rescue his people. That's his plan. This salvation was not only physical deliverance, but freedom. But the greatest freedom is the goal of worship. Freedom is good, and we should strive for freedom, but it's not the ultimate goal for the Christian. The freedom God seems most interested in as our freedom to worship. Zechariah then turns and prophesies about John and his role. He says there in verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our Lord, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. He'll be called a prophet of God, and he'll be unique. John was very unique, a forerunner. He will, his job was to come soften the ground. 
He was to till the soil of Israel's heart. He will not be the Savior, but John will prepare the way for the Savior by teaching people how they are to be saved. John was to be the billboard pointing the way to God's salvation from sin. And Zechariah's prophecy defines John's life in a relationship to Jesus' mission and life. And we can learn a lot from John. All lasting meaning is found when we define our lives in the same way, when we point to Jesus. Greatness comes from serving the Lord, not from serving ourselves. Greatness comes when we, like John, say, I must decrease and Jesus must increase. Is that our mindset of late? Are we continually reminding ourselves that we must decrease, that we're not the point? It's God. It's always been. Charles Spurgeon was once greeted by people after finishing a sermon, and a woman gushed to him about the glory of his sermon and the praised him for his great godliness. And Spurgeon replied, yes, I know. The devil told me that all too soon as soon as I stepped out of the pulpit. C.S. Lewis, Lewis also counseled, whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on not by God, but by the devil. And by that, we recognize pride can slip in so easily, friends. So self-centered, self-focused. And we shouldn't seek glory for ourselves, friends. All glory goes to God. Why do we glorify God? Why, why does John? Because he's, he's setting the stage for the Messiah who's, who's come to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of sins. And why must sin be forgiven? Why is sin a problem? Because it's an offense against God who is holy. And God in his holiness and anger will punish the sinner forever unless we're forgiven. You know, when we talk about being saved, we should ask, what are we saved from? Have you ever asked that? It's an important question to contemplate. And the Bible's answer is we're saved from God. We need to be rescued from God's coming judgment against us. Unless we're rescued, we will suffer punishment in hell forever. Friends, have you escaped God's condemnation? Do you know how? This is crucial for you to understand. Perhaps today is the first day you've thought through this or understand this. Mark's gospel, he says in chapter 1, verse 14, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus says we need to repent of our sin, of trusting in ourselves, and to believe in him. To express faith, to trust in him. And that's what we're to do, friends. But the only way we can, any of us, be saved is because of the tender mercy of our God. The only reason any of us can be forgiven of our sin is because of mercy. You cannot earn forgiveness for your sins. You cannot demand forgiveness. You cannot barter for forgiveness. 
There would be no peace at all if you had to do something to earn or demand or barter for forgiveness. You would only worry that you didn't do enough, that you're not strong enough. Forgiveness only comes through mercy, which means forgiveness is full and free and undeserved. And the way that we find forgiveness is to ask for it, to confess our sin of trusting ourselves and recognize that He is faithful and just to forgive us. You know, this last section here of the Benedictus is beautiful. It says, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was... And he, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And, you know, through the, through the mercy of God, we receive light. And the light is Christ himself. He is the sunrise that visited us. In our sin, we sat in darkness like prisoners locked in a, in a dark dungeon below. But when Christ comes into our hearts, he brings light. And all of a sudden, everything shines. Everything's bright. Darkness flees. Death is finally defeated. And we have peace. See, salvation brings peace. Peace with God, peace with men and women, peace with ourselves. Do you have this peace? Has the sunrise dawned on your soul? It's a beautiful song here, Zacharias, Benedictus. It describes the tender mercy of our God. And mercy is God's loyal, faithful, gracious love as he acts for his people. It's the same God who showed himself to Moses. It's the same God who shows us mercy. It's the same God throughout the Old Testament. Micah 7, 18, Who is God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. He delights to show mercy. And nothing is more wonderful for a sinner than to receive mercy. Friends, have you taken note of God's mercy in your life? You either labor to notice God's mercy and see more of it, or you harden yourself to it and you take it for granted and you miss it. I want to exhort you, friends, to not ignore God's mercy in your life. And we need to labor We need to spend time laboring to notice the ways that God has been merciful to us. We're going to close our time together by singing a relatively new hymn, His Mercy is More. It's a hymn written by Matt Papa and Matt Boswell and based upon a letter of John Newton that he wrote to a friend who was struggling. It's a beautifully structured hymn. We've sang it for a year or so. You guys should be familiar with it. But it's a beautifully structured hymn. And if you're paying attention, if you think about the words, you're singing the gospel. And so when we sing a lyric like, our sins are many, his mercy is more, it's a, it's a song of truth for all time and all places and all generations. It's, it's worth memorizing and singing that truth for all of our life. I want to read just a portion of this letter and what it's based on. You'll, you'll notice then the similarities of where they came to this song. And this is what John Newton wrote to a struggling friend. And maybe you can relate to what he says. He says, Are you not amazed sometimes 
that you should have so much as a hope that poor and needy as you are, the Lord thinks of you. But let not all you feel discouraged, you, for if our physician is almighty, our disease cannot be desperate, and if he cast none out that come to him, why should you fear? Our sins are many, but his mercies are more. Our sins are great, but his righteousness is greater. We are weak, but he is power. Most of our complaints are owning to unbelief, and these evils are not removed in a day. Wait on the Lord, and he will enable you to see more and more of the power and grace of our high priest. The more you know of him, the better you will trust him. The more you trust him, the better that you will love him. The more you love him, the better you will serve him. And then he ends here. Remember, the growth of a believer is not like a mushroom, but like an oak, which increases slowly, indeed, but surely. And what a reminder that is. We don't grow like mushrooms, fast and complete, but like oaks, slow and surely. And God is faithful. See, Luke was right in all of this. The humble will be exalted in God's mercy, and the proud will be humbled in judgment. And I pray that God's word will be a help to us this week. We'll continue to trust the Lord and rest in his mercy. Let's pray. Father, in your goodness this morning, you have allowed us to come and worship you. And we recognize again and we say publicly, it's all about you, God. You are worthy of our worship and we desire to magnify you in all that we do. You are astounding, God, in your mercy towards us. What an amazing and patient love that forgives our sin. And what patience you show us as we, we have moments of roaming away, and yet you call us back to yourself. Father, thank you for your continued love and grace to your children. And I pray that we would remember your mercy this week that we would seek to live humble lives, pointing ever so faithful to, to Jesus and not ourselves. I pray that we would recognize that we need to decrease and you need to increase. And may that be our theme this week. And give us strength to be faithful to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.